When it comes to the investment decision, we know that we cannot replace this process completely. But what I think we can do is we can show some underrepresented founders or some hidden gems that otherwise would not be on a venture capitalist radar. Welcome to Venturing Women, a podcast about female founders, investors, and ecosystem enablers. Hi, this is Daria Kumkalova. Every time I talk to venture capitalists, I keep on hearing startup investment is a people business. Investors must believe not only in the product of the market, but in first place in the team, the founders. But if it is a people business, is there any space for technology here? Can you possibly evaluate a team algorithmically? It turns out yes. Well, at least to a certain extent. Today I'm speaking with Penny Schiffer, CEO and co-founder at Raised AI. It's a data-driven platform that allows venture capital investors to source startups in an automated way. Prior to launching Raised AI, Penny had worked in venture capital for 10 years. Fundraising and investment is like dating. Founders are looking for investors, investors are looking for founders. I'm not sure if we'll get to swiping left and right here, but if technology can help these two groups of people to meet, it's important to understand this technology. And that's exactly what we'll examine today. Hi, Penny. Welcome to Venture New Women. So nice to have you here. Hi, Daria. I'm excited. Many founders build ventures because they come up with a lucrative business idea or they meet someone working on an issue worth tackling. There are many different reasons why people make a leap of faith into entrepreneurship. In your case, it was a serendipity moment to blame. Tell me about this moment and how the story unfolded from there. Absolutely. So I had always admired entrepreneurs and I wanted to build my own company at some stage in my life. But it was only about three years ago that the idea came to me that I'm building right now. So I was waiting for this idea to find me. And the way it happened was literally on a flight from Zurich to San Francisco. So I was invited to give a talk in Stanford. And I was sitting next to a guy who was talking about his business, so some AI financial services business. And over this flight, it's almost 11 hours, it really got me thinking Why do we as venture capitalists, I was working at the time in a VC fund, why do we not use more technology to find deals, to evaluate companies, to be better venture capitalists? We are dealing with companies that build deep tech solutions, most sophisticated ones, but we are still working with Rolodex and our network. And on that flight, it it really changed me. So at the beginning of the flight, I was excited to give this talk. And at the end of it, it was absolutely clear that I wanted to build a company around this idea and improve my own industry. So when I was in California at that time, I used a week to meet with a lot of people, get their input and confirmation that this is something that the world needs. And I started building it. And you did get this confirmation that the world needs it. Yeah, absolutely. Also, there was no other answer I would have accepted, right? I mean, once you are in that mode, you really try to figure out what's the best starting point. So how did you collect this input and what was the confirmation that you received? At the time, it was the early days of the big venture firms embracing artificial intelligence and building their own solutions. 
And I met with people who had started to find deals on the internet and evaluate them using machine learning. And I asked them, how did you do it? How would you generalize it? Do you think this is worthwhile for other funds? What's working? And also, more importantly, what is not working? Because there are so many things you can do, but a couple of them are useless or too difficult or they do not scale. And out of 20, 30 interviews with either experts or potential customers, it kind of formed how I should go about and where we should start building the solution. And we started with how we find deals. There is deal origination, and now we are moving into the screening and into the more sophisticated evaluation. So the way we build the solution is naturally coming out of the way venture capital firms look for deals and make investments. I think it's a great moment to talk about Raise AI. What exactly is it and why do investors need it? <laughs> That's my pitch moment, right? So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> go for it. So at Raise AI, we built an artificial intelligence platform that helps every venture capital investor to become a better investor by knowing about opportunities earlier, finding the opportunities that really match their own thesis, and being able to find hidden gems and fight bias and focus on those companies that have the best chances to succeed. When you say thesis, you mean the investment strategy of every investor. Yeah, I can give you an example of a thesis that an investor can build on our platform. So we have one customer who wants to find startups that are founded by Israeli founders. But he's not looking only in Israel, which a lot of Israeli investors do, but he wants to find Israeli founders outside of Israel. And believe it or not, there is actually quite a high number in the world, but you don't find them easily. And with our platform, you can look for Israeli founders because we go and assess by the name and their education if they have ties to Israel. We have also investors that have a thesis which is more around a topic. So, for example, just yesterday we talked with a prospect who wants to find generative AI companies. Or we have customers who have a very, let's say, geographic thesis that want to see all deals in the German region as soon as they come on the market. As someone who spent 10 years in the data industry, I'm always excited to talk about this side of things. So we'll definitely come back to that. But I want to make a step back and talk a little bit about your company building journey. So uh, you used to be an investor and then you decided to build Raise AI. And I think what is interesting in your story is that you're a technical founder who is unaware of, the, of this fact. You had to rediscover and unpack your technical background to build an AI business? How did you do that? That's a very interesting question and it's even a mystery for myself. So when I started, I worked with two machine learning engineers and when I asked them, so what did you do? How does it work? They said, look, you will never understand what we do. No like, never. way. Seriously. <laughs> Just accept that it's a black box and that you're Yeah, not it's a black box and you'll never understand. And you're not smart enough to understand this black box. Wonderful. When we started with Race AI, I was not aware that my education in statistics is so much related to what is today done in machine learning. I studied psychology initially and in Germany and in the UK, this is a very statistical field. So for five years, you do nothing but statistical modeling, statistical testing, all these things. And I loved it at the time. 
I had completely forgotten about it until we started with Raised AI. So I read more about it. I even attended some classes and I understood that what I had learned in statistics today would be called data science. And I understood how you can translate the terminology that I used to work with when I was studying into today's terminology and how you can build it in Python code. I'm not coding myself, so it's not that I have an active knowledge or that I do contribute the Python code, but my passive knowledge is strong enough to see what we are doing and to guide from the data perspective where we should be going, what is the potential information we have in the data set, what kind of feature importance should we be going for. So I feel absolutely confident here now. And this is, as you said, a way to undiscover my skills. And when I realized this, I even called my mathematics professor, who was one of the guys who I admired, but most of the other students just didn't like it because it was too much math for them. And I told him, look, I'm so grateful for so many things that you taught us. It was such a deep education in data science that I can live on this today. And I'm just grateful. And I think the guy was even moved to tears. And he even sent me three of his books after so many years. And it's amazing that I can build on what I learned so many years ago. That's a great story. So you began building those data models. You were able to translate your statistical knowledge into data science. And I think it's fascinating to discover these abilities in yourself. And I think it also gives us so much confidence that you really understand what you're building, right? So what I'm interested in is that your algorithms, they look at the startups through the lens of an investor. What is this lens? An investor for an early stage investment would look at several factors. And on a high level, investors want to find companies that have a good chance to be successful and return the money and all these things. But on the detailed level, there is a number of factors where investors will have their own hypothesis or their own way of looking at companies. And mostly what they will do in a screening and due diligence phase is they will look at the team, namely the founders who are building the company. They will look at the market if they can. They will look at other investors or investments they have already gathered. And it's very sparse data. So it's not like we have detailed financial information that we can use to assess companies. When you look at the team, there is factors that are typically mentioned by investors that they look for. So, for example, a lot of investors prefer companies that have a specific number of co-founders. Many investors don't like single founders and they would exclude them out of their deal flow. Or there is investors who like to have companies with seven, eight founders. It may be a niche, but there is investors who are absolutely fascinated and who have had good experience with such companies. Then there is also some idea about the age of the founders. So there is investors who have had great success with founders who have been straight out of university, so younger teams, while other investors absolutely prefer when a team has already more experience in the industry that they are innovating it. And on top of that, there is investors who are looking for specific demographics, female founders or immigrant founders or some other underrepresented founders. And this may have many reasons. So one is those founders have been fighting hard to come to the stage where they are. And so they're probably more resilient, but it can also mean that they have a better chance to position their money in the founders because they are not hunted by investors. We also look at 
investments and investors. When you do a Series A investment, oftentimes there is information about the seed round. Who has invested in the past? How many investors have invested, but also how much have they invested and what is the timing of the investments? Typically, companies that have had reputational investors or investors that are very well connected tend to be more successful. And we can also use such attributes to include it into the scoring of the success chances of a company. You mentioned that you look at the correlation of the reputation of investors and the success rates of the companies. How do you define success of a company? Are you looking at revenue? Are you looking at exits? What are the criteria that you're looking at? Of course, overall, the goal is to have a successful company seven years down the line, let's say, with an IPO or with a trade sale. But this is very far away. That's why we have taken the approach to use the transition from C to Series A. So we define success as a company has done a seed round and makes it to a successful Series A. And we have defined not successful. A company has done a seed round, but they never make it to a Series A. So it's the investment trajectory rather than the company growth per se, which is, these are related things, right? Because if your company is not growing, investors will not support the next round. But we're not talking about some solid numbers that would be indicating sales or user growth or any kind of other commercial metrics, because they're not public, most probably, right? We are actually using the follower growth and the employee growth, not so much to predict the success, but to get an idea of when the startup will most likely do the next financing round. I'm trying to look at it from the standpoint of a founder. If I'm a founder, and I know that my startup is being evaluated not only by humans, but also by algorithms, what should I be aware of? What should I do or avoid doing? Well, it can be in your best interest that you give information so that algorithms or people can assess you. I'm not saying you must have this, but you must be aware that venture capitalists, humans or machine-driven assessments will take this into account. And if they have little information about you, it's hard for them to judge on your qualities or see how a team is composed before they have talked to you. So they would like to have some information to understand if it's worthwhile to reach out to you. What else would you recommend? I totally agree with that. I was recently looking at a startup and talking to founders, and that was exactly the feedback that I gave to them. I said, look, there is nothing on Crunchbase. Your LinkedIn account is pretty empty or underdeveloped. What else would you recommend? What else would be taken into consideration? Well, if you have done a financing round and you can talk about it and it looks positive in terms of the investors who are involved, in terms of the amount you have raised, you should also make sure that this is available, for example, on Crunchbase, so then it's public. And by the way, you can claim your profile on Crunchbase. So it's not like you have to wait for someone to fill in the gaps. Of course, a lot of investors look at your website. So from the website, you can get more information on the team. You can get more text that you can digest either as a human or as a machine. So this is also important and helpful if you put in some love into your website and how you want to present yourself. And by the way, this is a very interesting indication for an upcoming fundraising activity. So when a startup 
changes the website, updates their LinkedIn profile in terms of what they are doing, then oftentimes this happens before you start fundraising. So it's a natural way to do a bit of window dressing, right? And we capture this also as a signal for when a company might be preparing a fundraising activity. It's a very interesting signal. It's not 100% sure that you will be doing something, but we weigh it against other signals and we take this as one of many signals into our scoring. I keep on hearing from venture capitalists that venture capital is a people business, particularly with early stage startups. And we spoke a little bit about how you can assess the team. And these are quite clear metrics that you have already mentioned, right? So for example, how old the founders may be, how many founders are on board. But I think that a lot of the team assessment comes from the human characteristics of the founders. It's about grit. It's about the knowledge the experience in a specific industry, things like that. Can a machine evaluate a team and make a solid prediction from this standpoint? I would not go and vouch for this, to be honest. So what oh, we are thank doing... Thank you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Don't worry. But, you know, we want to put some of the tools that an analyst has to do manually, we want to put it into a machine and help an analyst to screen more companies and to have a bigger lake of companies that they can be evaluating using our tools. When it comes to the investment decision, we know that there is so much more in the due diligence that can be done. So here we cannot replace this process completely. But what I think we can do is we can show some underrepresented founders or some hidden gems that otherwise would not really be on a venture capitalist radar. So sometimes founders don't go to all the venues where the venture capitalists would be going. Or maybe through their characteristics, they don't fit the box. And we can help you find founders that don't fit the box, but still have good chances to be successful. So that's where we think we can add value with the assessment, but we don't think that we can add value in taking the investment decision out of the hands of the professionals who will do much more analysis, meet with the founders and also assess the, let's say, human qualities of the team. You've anticipated my, my next question. I really want to talk about increasing the chances of underrepresented founders and helping them to be noticed by investors. Can you talk a little bit more about how you help investors to discover this type of startup founders? You say that if they don't fit in the box, but you still offer them the chance to be visible, how does it work? There is a number of investors that are now much more open and even concerned about their portfolio keeping underrepresented founders out. It's not done on purpose, but this is what happens when you don't take extra care. Now, a number of investors have really started to notice this and would like to change it. And they can only change it by having deal flow of founders that are outside of the box. So they must go out actively to look for female founders, for example, or immigrant founders that don't just walk in their door because they don't feel comfortable or it doesn't cross their mind to do so. So we help those founders to be listed on the platform and to be visible to investors, even when they don't fit the normal criteria that investors would be looking for. We have noticed also that our assessment algorithms are representing the past. So there is a gender bias and other biases in the data that we use to train our models. That's no surprise. 
And now we are experimenting with how to best fight the bias and what is the outcome or what is the algorithms we want to implement. And so far, what I can tell is the following. We can protect sensitive features, such as the gender, without compromising a lot of the performance of the algorithm while increasing the fairness of the model significantly. So what it means is that we can train our algorithms so that they come to a judgment without being biased against the gender. And it's still a very high quality algorithm. So this was actually a surprise for me because normally when you leave out information or when you don't digest it, you would also lose a lot of the performance of the algorithm. But we didn't lose much, but we could significantly see that the fairness is much better of those algorithms. So we are going to publish a paper on it and we will also incorporate it in our algorithms. It's still kind of experimental and I think it's very exciting to do it because it has such a strong effect. I didn't expect this. So when we started doing it, I was more like, yeah, let's see, you know, there is some gender bias in it, but I don't think we can fight it with the algorithm. And when the team showed me how they did it, I, I was really amazed and impressed. So what are the other attributes? You mentioned the gender. What are the other attributes or parameters that you can leave out to make the algorithm less biased? Some of the attributes that we are protecting or that we are sensitive about is, of course, the age of the founders or, let's say, the seniority. So that's something that we think can be taken into account, but obviously there could be biases in the data set that we use for training. Also, we take the location because we know that some of the startup hubs have a higher chance for a founder to be successful, not necessarily because their business is better, but just because they sit in such a location. So we take this out too. And then we have also started to look into the ethnicity or the origin of the founders. So some founders with names that indicate that they come from some countries, let's say other than the US, they seem to have a harder time to raise funds. And we are also devising our algorithms against those features. And if we create bias-free algorithms for investors, will we close the gender investment gap anytime soon? Well, let's hope, but it's not the algorithm that can close the gap, but it's the investors <laughs> that would like to use algorithms to find better investments. So it's really, there has to be a movement in the industry. And I can see that there is a lot of talk about it. So let's see what the work is going to be like. But we are trying to do our share to make it possible to find female founders and to assess them in a way that does not take their gender as an important attribute into it. This is great. So I usually ask a question to wrap up the interview about something in your life that is not necessarily related to your career, but something that shaped you as a leader and as a founder. You led an NGO at some point, and I know that it shaped a lot your leadership skills. Tell me more about that. When I was a student, I was very active in an NGO that had the ambition to help protect the environment and change people's behavior using psychology. And I was part of that organization for a couple of years and I was the president for, I think, two years. What I did well at this position as a president of the NGO was I tried to be a moderator more than the person who would set the agenda points as to what to discuss and what the opinion would have to be. At the time, 
there was, like today, a lot of discussion. Should we do this? Should we do this? Can you live a good life when you are also destroying the environment? So there was a lot of blaming even inside of the organization on what's the best approach of how you should live your own life and how you should influence other people. And I tried to be the one who was moderating, but not making the discussions more hot. So I think this helped the organization to stay in a way that there was uh, a joint goal and that everybody felt welcome, even when the discussions were sometimes very heated. And I still like to do that today. Of course, I will have opinions and other people will also see this, but I try to be also much of a moderator where other people's opinions or approaches should get their place and I can learn from other people rather than just saying this way or highway. I have a team of experts and they know many things better than I do. So it doesn't make sense that I tell them this is exactly how I want it because that wouldn't fly. So it's better to be a moderator and try to make sure that we go on a journey together. And if you didn't build Raise AI, if you didn't become a founder, what would have been there in your life and in, and in the world? The last three years have been a very rewarding and intense time of my life. So it feels much more than just three years. And especially when I compare it to the 10 years that I was working for a corporate in Switzerland. It's a good company. I had a good life and everything was fine. But the 10 years felt much less deep and much longer than the three years that was so full of discovering things, having to take decisions, building the team, having some successes, having to go through difficult times. All this is much more intense when it's your own company. And I think this shapes you as a person. I don't think also it's for everyone. When I went to the US in October to meet a lot of investors and industry experts for a roadshow, this is tough. So it's two weeks of being on the road, meeting so many people, engaging with them, getting feedback, some of it you like, some of it you don't like. It's a very transformative time. And when people ask me here in Switzerland, hey, I should do this, I tell them, Of course, you can do it too, but you have to be aware that it's really a lot of work and that it's not a fun holiday time, but you have to be prepared to be there and to do nothing but hustle for two weeks. Otherwise, it's not worth it. The most rewarding is really to see our application in action. When we have launched a new feature and I look at it and I can imagine how it will be for our customers, this is the most rewarding thing. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, share it with friends. Subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app to never miss a new episode. Leave a review in the app you use. Reviews help us to get better and let more people discover this podcast. For updates, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Telegram. 